Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 203 for July 2nd, 2009. Boyer and more. Security Now is brought to you by Audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by GoToMeeting. Business travel can kill your company's profits, so do more, save more, and travel less with GoToMeeting. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. And by IWantToBeANerd.com. The Nerds On Site team of IT professionals is looking for nerds with all competencies and skills. Go to www.IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting today. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security, your privacy, protecting you online. And here's the guy, just the guy to do it, Steve Gibson of the Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com, creator of Spinrite, discoverer of spyware. I feel like it's a Barnum and Bailey intro. Creator of Spinrite, discoverer of spyware, world traveler, the world renowned. And, and you know, Leo, I've, I've heard this before. Once or um, twice. And, well, 203 times, actually. <laughs> well, I think it's important if somebody's listening, hard to believe for the first time. Yeah, that, you're, you're right. That they you're know who right. I'm talking to. Maybe it's just an old you know, TV thing, but uh, I always feel like I have to introduce my, uh, my guests, but well, it certainly does let people know that if they've got complex iPods full of stuff that they're, they found the channel that they were hopefully looking for, or they found the wrong one, depending upon what they're in the mood for. So yes, 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 that works. So today we have, uh, one of two segments, uh, we're going to do, we'll have, uh, uh, a break in between with a Q&A, but two segments we're going to do on, what is it, fundamental computer science topics. Yeah, there are, the reason I thought of this was that I was I was actually implementing this particular amazing idea um, in the DNS benchmark the other day, and I just was thrilled again by how cool this is. It's a way of finding a substring in a buffer and now know, what, the, before you say man more what why would you want to find a substring in a buffer well, what, what are okay. you talking about has has anyone ever searched a document for a string sure you know that's what this is this is string search okay but it it bears directly on on our audience and the topic of security now because how would you imagine you scour your system for viruses you're searching memory. You're searching your files for known, you know, we, we, we talk about patterns or fingerprints or, you know, a snippet of a, a, you know, a known snippet of a virus. You want to uh, very quickly check your whole hard drive, essentially, you know, your, your file system for something. Well, there's, you know, the way you would expect to do it. And we'll talk about that. And then these two guys named Boyer and Moore, um, uh, Bob Boyer and Jay Strother Moore. Uh, at the time, they were at SRI and Park, both up in you know in Silicon Valley in Northern California. And um, in 1975, they said, "We have a better way." And it's just, I mean, it just curls my toes. It is so cool. And I, I just 
when I was thinking about this, I thought this is something that our audience would just get the biggest kick out of because I can explain it conceptually. And it's one of those things where people are going to go, oh, my God. I mean, you know, you would have never thought of it, but here it is. And it's like, oh, it's so much better than like the dumb way. You know, I love algorithms. Yep. <laughs> Maybe that's a nerdy thing to admit. Uh, and there have been big, long books written on it, including the classic uh, Donald Knuth books, um, which are really, I guess, in a way, logic puzzles. Uh, they're inventions. They're creations. And something like this, which which can you know make a huge difference in something that every program does all the time, has a huge impact. Well, yeah. And, you know, computer science has has like it happened when we invented computers. And then over the years, people have in, have discovered things. They've invented really cool solutions to common problems. In two weeks, we're going to talk about data compression as like like there's two guys also, interestingly enough, whose initials are LZ. Um, Limple, Limple and, and Ziv. Ziv. I know and, them. Yes. Yep. yes. And so, you know, LZW is Lempel Ziv Welch, LZH, Lempel Ziv Huffman. You know, many people built on that. But there was, again, just la- as with, with Boyer and Moore, these two guys had this really cool idea for like, this is how we sh- can compress data. And it works better than anything that had been done before. And people have improved on it, but there's still this fundamental concept. So we're going to have a couple a couple episodes here of just really neat conceptual stuff. And, and as you say, Leo, this stuff is, you know, it's there, you know, it's sort of fundamental computer science. It's, it's actually why I like writing an assembler is I'm constantly, you know, doing algorithms, you know, of various sorts, not amazing ones all the time but i I, i've got my own boyer moore string searching routine that is it's in the server at grc uh you know checking um for various things in incoming data and also in the the dns benchmark that'll be happening soon i think it's so cool so interesting we'll talk about it in just a second i i do want to mention and we also have some security news we'll get to oh yeah and uh, all kinds of updates and stuff but we'll uh, get there in a second first i want to mention my friends at GoToMeeting at Citrix, you know, business travel is one of the most expensive uh, parts of doing business. Uh, sending your employees via plane to meet people across the country, even just driving across town. Not to mention the wear and tear on the on the on the employee, on you if you're the boss. I I, I love to travel, but business travel just just kills me. That's why I recommend and use GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting makes uh, makes these meetings simple, easy, effective, engaging. You'll uh, stop wasting time driving or flying to meetings. I love GoToMeeting. I know you're going to want to try it too. Very easy to install. Just uh, go to gotomeeting.com, sign up for your free account. Actually, go to gotomeeting. Let me give you the special URL, the secret URL. gotomeeting.com slash security now. When you go there and sign up for an account, you get the first 30 days free. So it's a good way to try Go to meeting to see if it works for you, for your business, for sales presentations, for product demos, for training, collaboration. Just about any kind of conference call is better with go to meeting. I want you to try it right now for free. $49 a month if you decide to stick around. I know you're going to because that's a heck of a lot less even than just one plane ticket, just one trip across town. G-O-T-O, go to meeting.com slash security now. 
Give it a try today. You're going to love it. We thank him so much for their support of the Windows Weekly. I'm sorry, the Security Now show. <laughs> Did I have Windows Weekly written down somewhere? That's what it was. I was reading the URLs. Your eyes, yeah, right. eyes hit Windows Weekly. Yep. Does he, if you ever do that? Oh, all the time. You yeah. read something and you want mean to say something else, but you read it and then it says it's in bold on this copy. That's why to fix that. And we're getting old, Neil. <laughs> Ever do that, Steve? Forget exactly what you're doing and wander off and look for soup. So uh, let's let's uh, get this uh, errata and updates out of the way. Yep. Before we, we got a bunch of security news. More. Nothing horrifying, although this first one is is really annoying because of a real problem with terms and terminology. It turns out that Adobe Shockwave has a pretty significant remote code execution, you know, remote people take over your machine problem. The problem is that this is not Flash, which is what is most common. This is the sort of the original Shockwave that is is authored by their director tool, which, of course, they all, you know, Adobe bought all of this from Macromedia. So there was Macromedia Director and Macromedia Shockwave. Then yeah. There's also Flash. Right. And the problem is that the way this stuff identifies itself in your computer is very confusing. For example, um, you'll see Shockwave Flash. And okay, wait a minute. Is that the Flash or is that Shockwave? Is that the problem or not? Right. And so, for example, under Internet Explorer... If you, IE has the facility for managing its add-ons. You click the gear and then select manage add-ons. And and this is IE 8, which is, of course, the current one and the one there Microsoft is now pushing on people. So I'm, you know, people who are at 7 or 6 are probably there deliberately. So I'll assume they're a little more expert. But anyway, you find the the manage add-ons feature. and in IE8, uh, it, it's got them listed, broken out by by publisher. So then there's a heading, Adobe Systems Incorporated, um, and Shockwave Flash Object was what mine showed. And I thought, oh, there's Shockwave, but that's not the one that you need to worry about. Um, you need to, normally, IE only shows the loaded add-ons. You need to look for to select the list box for all the installed add-ons, then it'll sit there and think for a while and give you a much bigger list. Scrolling down through all of the Microsoft debris, which is not currently um, in uh, not not currently running in memory, you'll get down to like an, another Adobe section, likely. And so, what you're looking for is just Shockwave, but not Shockwave Flash. Um, what Adobe's site says is you need to uninstall this, then restart your computer before you install their update. So they have an update where we're trying to get. That's is, annoying. You mean, oh, they, oh, you have to uninstall, then reinstall? Yeah, um, that's what they say. And what what I found was that I didn't have it installed, but apparently... 60% of PCs and Macs do, and there's some 450 million cop. No, it's got to be 45 million. 45 million <laughs> instances of this. So, not know. everybody who has Flash has Shockwave. Correct. And okay. so, fundamentally, I mean, ba- backing up, what I ended up doing was then I went to 
under the control panel after sort of getting myself confused about which one we were talking about because the nomenclature is very confusing. Yeah. I went to the control panel in Windows to add remove programs and there was a collection of little Adobe things. You know, it's uh, normally it's sorted alphabetically so they'll be near the top. Um, and so I saw Adobe Flash and Adobe ActiveX, I think they were, and nothing else. When I installed the update from Adobe, then there was a new item in Add Remove, which was Adobe Shockwave. And I think under Firefox, I, there, there was a reference to Director, like Shockwave for Director. Anyway, what I realized after all of this was I never had this installed in the first place. <laughs> so then I, removed it. then I uninstalled it and, you know, using Add Remove programs to uninstall it. And I was like, I was back where I was, but at least now I know that, that I'm not one it. of these 45 yeah. million people who had installed this. So it may very well be that our listeners won't have it, but for anyone who does, apparently it will have been something that you installed manually. That is, it's not sort of the, the you know, where you, where you go to a site and it says, well, you need Flash, click here to install it, and it just sort of does it for you. So that means that it has a presence in add remove programs, at least in Windows, where you can remove it if you have it. Um, and maybe you just ought to leave well enough alone after removing it and don't go and install the update unless you know that you need it for something. You know, the I, there are some pages that do say uh, you need a shockwave. Yes. And and they're generally I mean, they're, they're older, I think. They're older, and yeah. they're sort of, uh, you know, Shockwave and Director were sort of almost more like gaming. I mean, they're, yes. it's a it's a high-end authoring package, not just like Flash, which is sort of like Silverlight for doing animated little simple lightweight things. It's like much more content is what, you know, the original Shockwave Director is used for authoring. So it's it's not something that I had installed, and now I'm sure. So I wanted to let our users know. Anyway, where Adobe is now is at 11.5.0.600. And, and 11.5.0.596 and earlier are vulnerable. So if you've got Shockwave, which is, again, different from Flash or Shockwave Flash or however your system identifies it, then it, it is worth doing because this is one of those things where there's a, a large enough um, uh, target size for the bad guys. If 60% of PCs and Macs have this installed, I mean, that seems like a high number given that it seems relatively uncommon and unnecessary. You know, I've had my system running now for for all year and I've not run across a site needed it all on the other hand you know i'm not surfing as broadly as many people are so i want to let our li li listeners now that i've everyone's completely confused um know what's going on yes well and, that's, oh, that's by the good way, to you know go to get dot adobe dot com slash shockwave if you decide that you you do need to update to the latest so it's get dot adobe dot com slash shockwave all right um Google's Chrome browser has a new problem. It um, it turns out that if if you have a a deliberately maliciously formed reply 
to an HTTP request. So that is to say, if you went to, if, if something got you to click on a link that went to a malicious server um, and technical exploit details are available publicly, then the server can craft a response which will take over your machine. So that's not good. Uh, Chrome currently has about a 1.8% usage share on the net. So, you know, less than 1 in 50 people are using it. Um, Anything prior to Chrome 2.0.172.33 is vulnerable. So essentially that means if you're using Chrome, you just want to make sure you're using the latest one. Updates are available that fix this problem. So um, uh, that's worth doing. And we've also talked, talked, we've talked recently about Foxit uh, as the alternative to um, Adobe's increasingly large uh, PDF reader. People, a lot of our listeners I know, use the Foxit reader. Well, there's an optional add-on that has a, a new problem. Um, it's the JPEG 2000 slash JBIG2 add-on. Which is Isn't not the JBIG two the same problem? Yeah, we've been having problems with that recently. Um, it's not installed by default. You may not have it as part of your Foxit installation, but if you had installed it, uh, you want to make sure that you're using something later than two point zero point two thousand nine dot three o three three o three and earlier. Um, are vulnerable of this JBIG, the JBIG2 or JPEG2000 add-on. Um, and again, it's, you know, you something tricks you to viewing a, a, a PDF document with one of these images embedded, and it can be malicious image, which will trip a an overflow that exists in that add-on and execute code of the the, the bad guy's design. So, you want to make sure if you're using that add-on that you are three point you are later than three point three or earlier. Okay. And in Arata, I did want to observe an interesting headline um, from CNN, which was uh, late last week, um, uh, relating to Michael Jackson's death. Yeah. Um, CNN. This is the technology section of CNN.com. The headline was. Michael, ja- or it just said, Jackson dies, almost takes the internet with him. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I thought that was a great headline. <laughs> and uh, uh, I don't know if anyone knows this, but there was such a flurry of people jumping on the net when they heard through word of mouth or, or through whatever right. channel that Michael Jackson had died, Google thought it was a deny a distributed denial of service attack. <laughs> I'm sure they didn't think that for too long, but initially Not, that spike must have scared them. Yeah, there was a huge spike on Google News, and apparently it's one of the largest mobile computing events. That is it was people with their mm-hmm. with, with their iPhones mm-hmm. and cell phones and you know all their their radio connected refresh, refresh, cellular refresh. mobile devices yep. Yep. all wanting to get to find, to find out what happened. The L.A. Times website crashed and Twitter's servers suffered multiple crashes as everyone was Twittering each other or tweeting or whatever. That's how I learned about it. I learned about it on Twitter. And then my son texted me and then my daughter called me. So, yeah, 
I'm sure yeah. that was just me. I had a lot of traffic going on. Exactly. And so you can imagine. So anyway, this is sort of an interesting commentary on the, I mean, you know, the internet obviously didn't die, but it definitely suffered a blow when, when suddenly something happened that caused a lot of people to, to all at once in a relatively short time frame, use the net in a relatively focused way. People all tweeting or twittering or whatever that you, whatever the verb is you use, um, you know, the LA times being of course, where this happened at, at UCLA was, was where Jackson was, was taken, I guess you, UCLA medical, I think is where there was, you know, they were piling in to find out what was going on. So the LA times was where people naturally went. Maybe they were following links from Google news, who knows, but you know, anybody in that chain suffered, you know, from the event, because to, as we've discussed before, the networks and even servers are generally sized to be able to handle the traffic they're normally receiving, plus some amount of variation because you get daily variation, but not, you know, a hundred times that much. And when that much hits, they collapse Yeah, under that strain. Well, because you don't design a site to always be able to handle that traffic. It would be just too expensive. Oh, right. exactly. I mean, exactly. You would you would have servers sitting around doing nothing. excess capacity. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and they have to be ready at a moment's notice. So they have to be on burning power, heating up the air. So you got to you got to cool it off and you'd have all this bandwidth that you're not using. So, I mean, it absolutely is the case. I mean, we know, for example, that the phone system will collapse if everyone goes off hook right. at the same time. It just it doesn't have the capacity for dealing with that. When in when normal loads occur and people go off hook, they get dial tone. If everyone does, nobody gets dial tone. Now there are it's interesting. There are services you can buy now to kind of bandwidth on demand services that are designed to handle this. I don't know how well they handle this, but they they kind of ramp you up. You don't pay for it all the time, but when you need it, it ramps up uh, to scale to handle it. Well, and the, the way they work is they they. Again, they work on the law of numbers. They work on the idea that they'll have many customers who need the ability to have high, what's called burstable, high burstable bandwidth. But it's unlikely that all of their customers would be needing to burst at right. the same time. Right. And so they, they, so they, they, they say to people, okay, we'll, you know, we're not going to charge you that much, but you're going to have this high burstable limit. They say to everybody that is their customer the same thing, uh, presuming that, you know, that no one is, you know, that, that their various customers have, for, you know, whatever their demographic profiles are, they're different from each other. So they're not going to be bursting at the same time. Once again, if by some weird coincidence, many of their customers tried, they'd again hit the wall because, no, you know, no one can afford, right. you know, really, really high levels of bandwidth um, on an ongoing basis. It's just too expensive. It's not interesting. Yeah. This, and we had talked before about that's how people uh, can insure themselves against DDoS attack, that they can buy bandwidth on demand so that if they get DDoS, they can. That, that's one way to handle it is to have so much bandwidth that the DDoS doesn't stop you. Well, in fact, that's, that's a perfect model of what we were just saying. There are there are suppliers who right. who say we will give you ddos protection so they've got all of their customers who are behind much bigger pipes right. and they're you know they're sharing the daily cost among all those customers who want to make sure if 
if someone tries to attack them, you know, they'll be prevented. And the goal, of course, or the hope is that not all of that company's customers would be attacked at right. once. In this case, <laughs> the traffic was huge everywhere. Yeah, and it was legitimate traffic. It was just right. too much of it. Right. Yeah. Um, I did have an interesting uh, and and sort of short little Spinrite anecdote um, from a Michael Barber who who wrote saying, Spinrite saves my TiVo without finding errors. He said, for the, last, for, the, for the past few weeks, when I was watching TV, it would cut out and go all pixelated. For months, I assumed that it was just the digital cable, since that does happen from time to time, but lately it's been getting worse, much worse. One day, I tried to go back to the recorded list, and the screen was frozen. No amount of button pushing would work. I rebooted the TiVo, it's a Series 2, and it hung on rebooting. I reset it again, and it came up that time. At this point, I knew it was the drive and not the cable causing the pixelation, and my drive was dying. So I took the 160 gig drive and put it out, took it out of the TiVo and put it in my PC and ran Spinrite on level three. It said level four was going to take 25 hours, and three hours and 30 minutes later, at level three, Spinrite was done. I was a bit confused because Spinrite didn't identify any bad spots on the drive. Regardless, I put the drive back in my TiVo, and all has been well ever since. No more pixelation. Thanks for writing Spinrite and hosting Security Now, two truly invaluable tools. Isn't that interesting? Does that make sense? Yeah, it's it's often the case. It's one of the things that is a constant annoyance, frankly, for me, is that Spinrite's working with the drive... And and there's really nothing that I can report because because the drive's relocation of defective sectors is deliberately invisible. Oh. I mean, it's, it's even invisible to Spinrite. Spinrite is able to to cause the drive to form to 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 cause the drive to see that it's got a a a problem reading a sector which is. Still correctable, but getting almost to the point of not being correctable. That's what causes the drive to say, oh, you know, shoot, we got to fix this now. So the drive fixes it, and, 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 but there's no, there's no error at any point. This is normally supposed to be automatic, but some drives, you know, need Spinrite's help. Or the, the sector is coming back unreadable often. Well, Spinrite keeps asking for the same sector it does a whole bunch of different things like moves the head in in different in in either direction random distances and then comes back at that sector that causes slight different alignment of the head during each attempt and so what the idea is that that spinrite will sit there working with the drive continually asking for this sector and it comes back bad 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 just once It'll be correctable, and then and then the drive says, "Ah, we got the data." It uses that opportunity to swap in a spare, and everything's fine. So there's really nothing for Spinrite to report except, "Hey, your drive's all fine now. Put it back in your TiVo, and everybody will be happy." But there, so there weren't there weren't bad there weren't errors caused. There weren't bad sectors because they were fixed. So I know it's it's 
difficult to explain. And, you know, people say, well, I don't know. It didn't do anything. But, but it fixed it. Now. <laughs> it didn't do anything, but it fixed it. <laughs> exactly. It's like, well, yes, it did. But there was really nothing I could tell you. Right. Except, right. you know, be glad you have spin right. Sometimes just poke. In other words, sometimes just poking the drive and checking every sector gets the drive to fix the problem itself. Well, yes. The, the, in, in the TiVo, the drive was returning errors. Right. So, so TiVo was saying, oh, you oh, know, TiVo I TiVo remapped it. Well, no, no. It, 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 was, it was did. seeing that the, that the sector was bad. Right. Spinrite doesn't give up. I and see. So, so, and Spinrite has a bunch of strategies for helping the drive get one last good read. It just needs one last correctable read. And then the drive is, at that point, is so freaked out that it says, oh, my God, look how, you know, I had a burst error that was the maximum I'm able to correct. Thank goodness I can correct it. So it did, but it, but that stimulates it then to spare the sector out and bring in a, a, a new replacement where it puts the data that it corrected right. back in. So right. there's no, you know, at no point is there anything that, that is like a bad sector because we fixed it. Right. But we really did fix it. I mean, work got done, even though, you know, Spinrite said, well, you know, this took three hours and a half, but look, you got something for your for your time and trouble. Well, and that's another point is that there are bad sectors all the time on hard drives that they fix you don't even know about. I mean, that's just part of the process. Yes. Well, in fact, exactly. So there is a you know there the degree of badness is 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 always being tolerated. Once upon a time in the in the old you know twenty megabyte drives, they would list the def, the, the known defects on a label on the front. And you hopefully put those in when you were low-level formatting the drive. Many people didn't. So one of Spinrite's features back then was it would find the defects and mark them out for people. You know, many OEMs were just slapping the drives in and sending them out the door because right. you know, they, they didn't have time to do all that. Right. Or they didn't have people trained to do that. So Spinrite would find the defects and mark the sectors bad and, and protect you from yourself. Now what's happening is that there's the densities are so high that... Almost all sectors have some degree of correction. There's some problem with them, but it's not bad. And the, and the drives <laughs> are designed to tolerate that. It's when they get bad that you have a problem. And right. so what can happen is the sector can go from not very bad to really bad. Right. That is like unreadable. Right. That's when you need Spinrite to come in and sort of back it away from unreadable Get one last good read, which allows the drive to say, whew, thank goodness we got that. And then it's able to put a spare in. Very interesting. It's, you know, it all, so it's all just science. You have, have you ever read any Kim Stanley Robinson? Mm, don't know the name at all. No. Oh, now see, I'm, I'm, I think this is a science fiction that you might be interested in. Huh. Um, I, I'll tell you what, I was looking for sci-fi to re, to listen to on the airplane. And, uh, and, uh, and actually, I, I was looking for it on the Kindle, too. In fact, if you check this on your Kindle, I, I, this book was free on the Kindle. I don't know why. Hey. <laughs> um, but it's free on the, uh, on the uh, uh, Audible, too, if you uh, become a new subscriber. So, so it's, it won the Nebula Award in 1993 for Best Novel. It's really hard science. That's why I thought you might have heard of him. Uh, it's called Red Mars. And uh, it's part of a trilogy. There's, I think, Red Mars, Blue Mars, Green Mars. Um, about of Mars, the process of Mars colonization, which frankly we may well see in our lifetime. Um, 
but it but it's based on years of research and i i read all the reviews and said this is incredibly scientifically researched and accurate this is very much what we would expect it to be like should it happen red mars green mars and blue mars red mars is the first in the trilogy they're long i know you like long sci-fi and uh, so you check your Kindle and see. I got it for free on the Kindle, maybe because they know that now I have to get blue and green Mars. <laughs> and they'll jack the price up on that. But you can also get it for free right now at audible.com. And, you know, I'm looking for long books to listen onto this long plane flight. Uh, not only do we have a 17-hour flight to get to Beijing, but then we have in, in-country flights and then the flight home. So I need, you know, maybe about 40 or 50 hours. This is 23 hours and 52 minutes. I love Audible. You know, it's the greatest way, if you're on a long flight, to make that flight whiz by is to get a real page-turner on there. I was going to download some uh, history. Uh, I have a bunch of history on there, and Jennifer said, no, 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 you got to get a page-turner for the flight. And she's, I said, you're right. Science fiction. Red Mars, Kim Stanley Robinson, narrated by Richard Ferrone, who's one of their better, uh, really good readers. I can't wait to listen to this. I'm saving it for the plane flight. You can get it free right now. Just go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now, and it'll introduce you to the wonderful online audio bookstore that is Audible, the best source for audiobooks anywhere. You know, if you've been listening to audiobooks on the Zune, uh, or, or from the Zune store or on the iPod from the Apple store, those are Audible books. But you'll save a lot of money getting a subscription rather than buying a onesie twosie. Same books, great deal. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now, and the first book is yours free to keep. Uh, I just I think you're gonna love it. For summer reading, for travel, for commuting, it's a lifesaver. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. I can't believe you've never uh read any uh Kim Stanley never, Robinson. Never ran across him, no. Huh. Well, I, 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 I'll have to ask in the chat room, but I sure got the impression from the reviews. And I mean, Nebula for the best novel in '93 means it's going to be good. Yeah, I, I think my problem is I sort of tend to stay with authors that I know. Sure. So do um, I. Because yeah, science fiction, I mean, there can be some bad, bad stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. I'll let you know because I know you love hard science. Cool. And this is the hardest of hard science. And I, uh, somebody else recommended. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson to me. I've heard it from a few different people, so maybe that's why. But there's our audible recommendation for the week. Now, let's get Boyer and Moore in here. Okay, so this is time for everyone to sort of take a deep breath. Um, I'm going to describe <gasps> something <laughs> as clearly as I can that All I right. think will be clear, but it's going to require some visualization. Okay. Um, so, you know, maybe set your propellers to half speed. Um, it's, it's not, it's not too hairy, but it's just so conceptually beautiful that I I needed to share this with our listeners. I think, uh, our listeners will get a kick out of this. So, so here's the task. We have a, a big block of data we'll call the buffer. So I'm going to make sure I use my terminology correctly so I don't get people confused. So we have a buffer of, of data, which are, you know, characters, you know, um, We'll call it English characters, you know, in ASCII, which is the standard um, encoding for characters where each character is um, uh, a byte long. And we have a what we'll call the pattern. The pattern is another much shorter string of characters. And we're trying to find the any locations of that where that pattern occurs in the buffer. 
And as we said at the top of the show, an example of this is anytime you search for something in a, in a document, you know, the document would be the buffer of, you know, this, this larger collection of a, a string of characters. And even though on the page we see them as, you know, going across and then down and over and, and across, you know, in normal reading uh, order, you know, internally, it's really just one long stream of characters. And so we're looking, you know, when you do a find in a word processor document, you're saying, okay, find this string, that is to say the pattern within somewhere within this buffer. Um, and of course, then the, the other um, very important use is this is how you search your file system for malware. You have, you know, the, the so-called, you know, we know that we're getting updates of so-called patterns um, from our virus, um, uh, antivirus vendor constantly, and that we're having our system looked, checked for these known malicious patterns. So it's very important to, for all kinds of reasons to be able to do this. And we would like to be able to do it as quickly as possible. So, so anybody sitting down sort of learning programming for the first time and is, is, is given the task, okay, how do I find this short pattern anywhere within this much bigger buffer? And so intuitively you say, okay, well, let's see. I look at the first character of the pattern and um, a good place to start would be to just sort of scan forward looking at each character in the buffer for an instance of the first character of the pattern. Because, of course, if you're going to have the whole thing match, then that means that all the characters have to match. And, you, and it makes sense to start with the first one. So you just sort of, you would scan forward through the buffer looking for the first instance of the first character of the pattern. When you find it, this is a, it's like, okay, hey, you know, I found the first character of the pattern. This is a possible match at this point. So what you would do is you then compare successive characters in the pattern and in the buffer one for one, looking to see if they all match. And if you get to the end of the pattern, that is all the characters have matched the pattern and the buffer until you've got to the end of the pattern, then you've obviously found a match of the pattern in the buffer. If you get like partway through the pattern and the pattern's character corresponding doesn't match in the buffer, it's like, whoops, well, we thought we had something. We got a few characters in, but we didn't make it all the way through the pattern. So we got to keep looking. So you just, you know, keep moving forward till you find another instance of the first character of the pattern in the buffer and then compare successive characters until you see whether you've got them all. And so that's, you know, that I mean, that's sort of the straightforward. This is how... You would think you'd find a a, a substring, a that, pattern in a buffer. That's if if you know if you sat me down and said, "How would you do it?" That's the intuitive way to do it, the obvious way to do it. Yeah, I mean, and and 
many, 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 many people. I've done it. I've written routines to do that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's the way you would think to do it. So in 95, uh, these two guys, um, Bob Boyer and, and Jay Moore, his middle name is Struther, Jay Struther Moore, uh, were collaborating in Northern California. And um, they're both computer scientists. Uh, Bob Boyer was at SRI, Stanford Research Institute, and um, Moore was at PARC, the Xerox, famous Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. And they, being algorithm guys, came up with a, a substantially better way to do something this simple. I mean, this obvious. And, and it's massively cool. Um, what they said was... Um, Should I interrupt you here and say... Save this while I mention nerds on site. I think you should do that. <laughs> we'll come right back. So we understand kind of the problem and the and I think it's pretty obvious. The obvious you, solution. Yeah, I mean that's how I would do it. Yep. Um, but clearly, this is a, a uh, uses a lot of cycles, and I think it's there's some magic coming uh, <laughs> to uh, to get this down into fewer cycles. This is the I tell you in a way this was the discipline in the early days of computing where you had little memory, slow CPUs small hard drives, you had to optimize. And I, in some ways, I think it was better then. I mean, you know, Steve, uh, Bill, Bill Gates, uh, you know, constantly w- was, I, I, every pioneer I've talked to, you, uh, Gates, Steve Wozniak, in Woz's case, it was parts. They're always trying to pare it down to the most efficient. And there was a joy in getting this, the, the fewest lines of code or the fewest parts. Oh, well, or the design of the Apple II. I mean, I've, you know, Waz is a friend. And I was just, was when I looked at the design of the Apple II, it was so elegant. Yeah. I mean, it, it, what they did for with so few parts was just amazing. And we've lost a little bit of that now because we have so much RAM and such big uh, We haven't lost a little of it, Leo. It's yeah. just gone. I think probably, I would bet in hardware design you have it because you still have to keep those costs down. True. So you're still trying to reduce the chip count, not to the degree that Woz had to. I mean, they had hawked Steve Jobs' V-Dub bus and sold uh, sold Woz's HP calculator to fund <laughs> Apple. So they didn't have a lot of money. But uh, I still think that some of that in hardware design, but sir, you're right, in, in coding, you know, who save a few cycles on a substring search? Ah. Fortunately, this stuff uh, is around and people use, I, I presume people use it in their libraries. We're going to get to that in a second, but I want to talk to the nerds out there. Well, I think we've already eliminated everybody who's not. <laughs> so that means all of you. <laughs> Anybody still listening? <laughs> you nerd. This is why I saved the nerds on site spot for last, because <laughs> I figured anybody who's still here is definitely a nerd. Somebody perhaps in the IT professions, somebody uh, who is... As a business, maybe a support business, that kind of thing. I want to tell you about nerds on site. You could go there and find out all about it. I want to be a nerd.com. They're looking for IT pros with competencies, competencies and skills in every area. I mean, they especially like the folks who work on uh, Macs and PCs, but also Cisco, Oracle, fix it technicians, website designers, programmers, and project managers. If you're in sales, if you're a trainer, a security expert, antivirus guru, it, they really are looking for people who are focused on the small and medium-sized enterprise. It's a growing market, and they need more nerds in that area in particular. But don't hesitate if you're in the IT business. If you have an IT business and you want to stay in business for, for, by yourself, 
for yourself, but not by yourself. You want to keep doing the thing that you love so very much, but you'd like some support on the things you don't love. I've learned that. The best thing in the world that you can do, and I know you know this too, Steve, is I've, you know, I've got our new CFO and Dane out there going over spreadsheets. I've got um, our office manager, Frederic, doing the bills. Stuff that I don't want to do so I can focus on the stuff that I love. And I'm more effective. I'm more productive. That's the idea behind Nerds on Site. Plus, you could tune up your skills. 250 competencies in their University of Nerdology, including systems architecture design, software development, where you'll learn stuff like Boyer and more, full-on source IT departments, desktop support, uh, a star of security gateway certification, certification in almost every area uh, appropriate for IT. And by the way, this is everywhere in the world, too. This is another great thing about Nerds on Site. They started in Canada, but of course, they're in the U.S., they're in Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, and India. If you're a nerd, if you love working with people, register for a nerds-only meeting in your neighborhood right now. Go to IWantToBeANerd.com. IWantToBeANerd.com and find out more about nerds on site. Thank them for their support, too. They've really really been a great uh, team to work with for uh, Security Now show. It's the only show they advertise on. They know where the nerds live. So... Okay, we, we collect them all. We they we all end up here. All the <laughs> they all roll right there downhill to security now. <laughs> so, all right, I I love this. This is this is this is the. I think we're coming to the aha moment, right? Where you did uh, the obvious, you did the you know the basic intuitive thing. But as is often the case in computer science and algorithms, the first thing that comes to mind is not the best thing that comes to mind. Well, and this happened in 1990, uh, 1975. You know, computers had been doing string searches for 20 years before wow. then. Wow. So, so everybody had been doing of, it that way. You know, the, a lot of people had been written, had been writing the normal kind of by string, searches, string searches, you know, yeah. start at the beginning and, yep. and march down until you see a, that they don't match and, and you start go, oh, over. darn, and then, you know, start again. But and you so, could see how that would kind of algorithmically increase in uh, CPU usage. Because well, it it yes, it does mean you're you're examining every single character in the buffer, looking for right. potential matches of the string. Right. So, okay, to 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 visualize this a little more clearly, sort of think of the buffer as Scrabble tiles, like a long, long linear string of Scrabble tiles, and the pattern is a is a shorter. Um, similar sort of little uh, a, a string of Scrabble tiles, and so you know wh- what we've been talking about is we're talk we've been talking about sliding this shorter pattern of Scrabble tiles along the long buffer of Scrabble tiles, and what we're trying to do is we're looking for anywhere as we slide along that they all match up that every, you know the adjacent tiles of the pattern exactly match those in the long buffer. And so, you know, intuitively, you know, we, we, to, to save on, you know, in terms of like an algorithm, as we were saying before, you'd, you'd just slide along till the first tile matches up with the one adjacent, the pattern and the buffer. And then you check, you know, check along to see if they all matched up, in which case, bingo, we found a match. If not, you just keep sliding along, checking the first one until it until it lines up, and then you check to see whether they all do. What Boyer and Moore 
hit on was don't look at the first tile. Look at the last one. And Okay, now I'm trying to, okay. So All right, so this is a huge insight. Oh, well. Start at the end. Start at the end of of the pattern rather than at the beginning. Why does it matter? Because if you say so so you we you know, this you is start- interesting because I'm, I'm looking in uh, volume three of donald knuth's sorting and searching and i think this came out before boyer and moore so it's not in here this was 1973 and you say boyer and moore was right in 1973 uh, 75 and they published oh. in 77 so it's interesting so this is the classic algorithm book yes and and knuth does have his own search which is a forward oriented right. search so you're right. This was Isn't after that. Interesting. That. Wow. So okay. So start we at the end. Start at the end. So we so we've got our first little uh, pattern of tiles lined up at, at the beginning of the buffer. We look to see whether the last tile matches the buffer, and presumably, I mean, chances are it's not going to. Well, here's the key: is so so the last tile didn't match, but the question is. What did it not match against? That is, what was the tile in the buffer? And here's the insight is if that tile that did not match doesn't occur anywhere in the pattern you're searching for, you can jump that pattern all the way down by its length. Because think about it, if the, if the tile at the end doesn't match and it doesn't occur anywhere in the pattern, then as you slid the pattern along one tile at a time, you couldn't ever get a match in any of the intermediate positions because we already know that the tile at the, at, that was in the buffer where the last tile of the pattern was doesn't occur anywhere in the pattern. So there's no point in sliding it along one tile at a time. Just jump the entire pattern down by its length. Of course. So that, if the pattern's long, could save you a huge amount Ah, of time. You got it, Leo. This is a huge win. The longer the pattern is you're looking for, the faster this goes, rather than the slower it goes. Which is what you would think, you know, which is what you would end up with in the starting at the beginning and moving down. So you like longer patterns. Now, okay, so what happens if the 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 tile in the buffer does occur somewhere in there? Well, what the way this is implemented in code is a table is created that is where where every entry in the table corresponds to a character so you know in for example if we're matching bytes then we've got we have we know bytes are 8 bits and so we would have we would have 8 bits worth of entries in this table which is to say 256 entries and and most of those entries would re- would probably represent characters that did not occur 
in the pattern we're searching for. So we fill them all with the length of the pattern. That is because, so, so the idea is if we, if we hit, we find that at the end of the pattern, we look that character up in the table and it says, jump the whole length of the pattern. So the entry in the table tells us it's called a jump table, not surprisingly, how far we can, we can jump the pattern forward. But say that we had a pattern we were searching for that had E a couple times. Well, if we, if we, if the last, when we're checking a match, the last character in the pattern doesn't match up with what's in the buffer. But what's in the buffer is an E. Well, what we want to know is what's the minimum distance that we slide the pattern to cause the last E in the pattern to line up with the E in the buffer. And so the idea is with Boyer Moore, you build this table before you start. Before you do any string matching, you build this table. You first fill it all with the length of the pattern. That is, you fill all the entries in the table with the length of the pattern. Then you go through and you quickly scan the pattern from the, the back to the front. And as long as you haven't changed that entry in the table, you, you put in the distance from um, that that character occurs from the front of the pattern. So, for example, if E were four bytes from the end, that says you're able, then you're able to slide the pattern forward four, four characters that will cause the, the, the E in the buffer to line up with the E in the pattern. The point is that's the, 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 the first chance that the pattern might all match in the buffer is if you slid it forward four. So what this means is that from an from a algorithmic standpoint, searching for a string is as simple and fast as you, you check the last character in the pattern and the buffer to see if they're the same. If not, you, you use the character that you found in the buffer to look in this table for how far you can jump. Most of the time, you're going to be able to jump the whole distance of the pattern because the chances are that character doesn't occur in the string. Sometimes you can't jump the whole distance because the, pat the character you found at the end does occur one or more times in the pattern, but you can still instantly compute by looking it up in this table how far to jump to line up that character with the last instance of the character that occurs in the pattern. So everything is this table lookup, which is extremely fast with computers. You know, they've got instructions just for doing table lookup. And so the idea is you, you then jump forward by however much, and you start at the end again. As soon as you have a mismatch, you look in the table how far you can jump. Most of the time, you can jump the entire distance of the pattern. 
And that's this wow. amazing insight that these guys came up with, which everybody uses. It is, it is today like the most efficient way of finding a substring in a longer buffer. And exactly as you instantly got, Leo, the longer the string you're looking for, the faster the algorithm runs. That's the big surprise of this. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, now I think whenever I do grep searches uh, on text, I'm going to have to make a longer string. I always thought, oh, I'll make it shorter, but make it longer and uh, it'll be faster. And so, and so what happens is before you start searching, the, that, that, that jump table, table is built, is built yeah, yeah. that tells you how, you know, for every character that you find, how far you can jump. The other thing that's interesting about this is that the, the larger the alphabet, that is the, like, you know, when we're searching for, for um, say, some random binary data mm. um, in malware, which is not, you know, you know our, our actual executable code that is what malware is written in is, is uses the whole alphabet. All, all eight bits worth are generally going to be occurring in, you know, in, in binary files, whereas in ASCII files, um, we're using a, a small subset. You know, for example, you know, the alphabet is 26 with upper and lower case, we're at 52 with with alphanumerics. We're at 62 and special characters. You know, still we're many fewer symbols that, that are common than the 256 in a byte. So the other nice thing about this is the the more dense the use of the alphabet, the the more the the, the less likely it is that that the character you hit in the buffer is going to be in the string. Right. So in general, more you're, you're just flying through right, the, right. The, the buffer doing your search. Wow. Anyway, it's just, it's, it's one of those things where you can, you, it can be described visually. You can sort of think about it, but again, ser- searching from the end is not what you would ever sort of just automatically come up with when someone said hey you know write me a little routine to do a string search yet it's so powerful to start at the end because when you if you get a character you hit one that doesn't occur anywhere in the string you're looking for you don't there's no point in sliding all the way along all those intermediate positions you know you can't get any matches because you already know that the character at the end doesn't occur anywhere in between right. so just jump over the whole distance and and then check again and then by using this table you're able to quickly do intermediate jumps when you do get a character that occurs somewhere you you jump to where it might match but then you start again at the end and if it's wrong you just say oh forget it and <laughs> and jump the whole distance it's just way cool very very interesting not not intuitive at all now sometimes with algorithms uh, like this i know this happens with search that there it's better at some kinds of material than other kinds of material and there may even be places where it's counter indicated if i get it it it's, makes sense that the, if it's completely random data it's better right because you're going to have uh, you're not have fewer hits um yes the you would certainly have, if you had, for, for example, if you're, if the string you were looking, if, if, if the pattern had many duplicate characters in its body, then you would tend to be, uh, then you would tend to be checking those More. possible, right. you know, alternatives. Instead of doing whole, whole jumps, you, right. you would, 
you'd have a more likely chance of doing little, little, you know, less than full length jumps. So is it less efficient if it's looking through ones and zeros then? Um, it's more efficient when you're taking larger chunks at a time. That right. is when bigger alphabets, eight, right. more randomly distributed would be right. good. So if it were ones and zeros, a small alphabet. It might not be as good in binary data as what I'm wondering. Um, well, but but the beauty is you're taking the binary data at a byte at a time. Oh, okay. You're and right. So, of course. So, so there, you are doing an alphabet then. Right. Yeah, so yeah. so aggregating in larger chunks creates in, increases the size of the alphabet. And as I was saying, the larger the alphabet, right. the more efficient the the, right. the end result. It's really, really cool. It is just, it's one of those <laughs> c- conceptual little just gems and you can imagine Nuth saying, Ooh. oh, I missed that. <laughs> I missed that one. <laughs> well, there's a lot my- of algorithms in his. You know, he's only published two volumes. I, I think that he's working on the third. Actually, he has three. I own the, the first three. But I think there's like there's a bunch more. And you're right. He is working on them now. Yeah. He stopped. Yeah. So they were stalled out. But that's the point. I mean, you, you know, if you've got thousands of algorithms in a, in a, vo- in a book like this, I have. Oh, I see him behind you. Yeah. Is that it? Uh, there's one, two, three, four. It looks like you've got there. Uh, yeah, but I've got w- two copies, and maybe maybe you're right. I was trying to look. Just I to think there's only two. I think there's I, volume right. one I've and three. Two of each. Yeah, volume one and three. I know that's what I've got, and I, I heard he was working on volume two. <laughs> Donald Newth is a, a professor of computer science at Stanford, and this now, is. I've these got are, volumes one, two, and three. There are three. There's a yeah, three. So so there one. are three, okay. but he's definitely working on finishing them. Which you know, those of us who are into this stuff, it's like, oh come on, come on, you know. I mean, it's it. The, those are the Bibles. Just he's done such a beautiful um, treatment of these, you know, fundamental approaches to solving these problems. He's, he better hurry. He's uh, in his seventies now, so. Yeah, but he's good. He is really good. He, he also can spit, he can spit this stuff out. He too. also created his own um, typesetting uh, system. Yeah, he created tech to yep, do this because he yeah because there was nothing that was able to adequately right. you know he wasn't able to express himself on paper using the computer. So he said, okay, well, I'll just have to do a a, a sophisticated typesetting system. And the uh, and the and they uses this kind of a pseudo language, a pseudo. Uh, uh, it's almost assembler language to 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 demonstrate these because you don't want to do it in any specific language. Well, he has it's called Mix M I X, which is his own little assembly language, and he so he shows you code for these things in this little Mix um, language. And in fact, a, a Mix emulator is available uh, un, under GPL. Oh, really? On the net, oh, that's that you're able neat. to actually write and and it'll compile and run these little Mix programs for oh, you. Oh, how neat! He's he's in January. I'm reading in the uh, in the uh, Wikipedia article. January 1990, Knuth announced to his colleagues he would no longer have an email address so he could concentrate on his work. <laughs> he knew in 1990 <laughs> that what we this now know be a problem. <laughs> 20 years later. Oh, yeah. Email's a problem. <laughs> I don't think he's probably doing any tweeting or Twittering. <laughs> and he's not anything. Twittering either. I can guarantee that. Yeah. Uh, three volumes so far. and He's working on volume four. And apparently updates are released to the website. So that's really cool. That's really cool. Steve, I loved this. This is really fun. I know we're going to next week, we're going to do a Q&A segment. But the week after you want to do another one of these uh, computer algorithm. I've got shows? one lined up, Leo. That's what we're going to do. Good. All right. Do you want to tell us or is it a surprise? 
Well, we've got two guys. Uh, once again, this oh, time you mentioned at the Boyer, beginning, yeah, yeah, Bob Boyer and Moore, right? And this, and next time we're going to do Lempel and Ziv. <laughs> I can't wait. I know a little bit about this one because I wrote a, a very early compression program for the Mac when there were no compression programs out there using uh, LZW. Cool. We will return uh, next week. Please listen every uh, Friday. Let's see, the show comes out Thursday. We record. Uh, on Wednesdays on live.twit.tv, live.twit.tv, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Uh, p- uh, Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. But w- because I'm going to China, the, the next recording will not be for a couple of weeks, but we will be back on July, let's see, 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st, 22nd. Uh, I think that's a Wednesday. Uh, uh, yes, it is. And okay. and the 23rd is the podcast 206. And I've got it slated here as the mega security news update. There'll be a lot to talk about. Let's see. Well, I'm in China. About, so we're just going to do that. <laughs> the Chinese hackers will be busy. <laughs> then we'll have something to report. Steve, always a pleasure, especially when you do this kind of stuff. Go to GRC.com. That's his website. Uh, you can get a copy of Spin right there, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, bar none. I could say that unequivocally. Uh, also, great free stuff like Shields Up, Shoot the Messenger, Decombobulator, Wismo. Soon, some really neat new stuff coming out. Uh, of course, Perfect Paper Passwords are there as well. And his uh, forums, there's some great security forums. And that's where you can also leave questions for our Q&A sections. Uh, that's at uh, grc.com slash feedback. Yes, please do. The questions are definitely appreciated. 16 kilobit versions of these shows, transcripts, and show notes also there. And we have... Uh, additional show notes thanks to our intrepid audience at wiki.twit.tv Steve we'll see you next time on Security Now thanks Leo Security Now